0: That was wonderful. Yoni and Tara. you guys are like a little powered drum and piano. Man, give it, yeah, you guys had a clap for them. I, you know, we were really nervous, um, you know, moving over here. What was going to happen with the music? And Man, that sounded like a piano. I mean, that sounded exactly like a piano. Like, I thought there was a baby grand piano here when Tara played her offertory. And that kudos to Jerry, because you have done a great job with our sound. Thank you. I'd be running for the door if I had to do anything on Sunday and try and start a school week and a school year like you did. So thanks for your help. Well, let me get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. Give a little happy birthday shout-out to my daughter. She's four years old today. We're taking cards with cash in them. Because we have to buy a van now. Ask me why. Because Stephanie's pregnant. Again. <laughs> some of you are looking at <laughs> some of you are like, "Oh boy." His sermons are going to be a lot different now. I'm just going to come in and start crying. Just, yep. Yeah, well, you're not going to see Stephanie here for a little while. Um, we have made a decision as a family to keep Stephanie in Broward right now, um, just until everything happens with, until we find out what's going on with uh, the Zika and the um, of the virus. It's very dangerous to women who are pregnant as I'm sure you all know by now Um, so we're gonna we're gonna let her stay in Broward for now we've taken all the precautions we can and of course we trust in the Lord to to provide and to keep her safe and to keep the child safe but we also know that God has given us means and a brain to you know follow the advice of the CDC so we're just gonna keep she's gonna stay in in Broward for now so if you don't see her a call every once in a while she might appreciate so um, but pray for her and pray for our family as uh, bills are going to go up now. You said, like, yeah, you know, because you and Jerry, I guess I'm crazy like you guys. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for our, the blessings you've given us. Lord, we, we joke, but I just thank you. Mm. I thank you for my family. And I know that the parents who are here are thankful for their family. I thank you for my church family this morning, who's here today and who's here to edify me by just their presence. And I thank you for their participation in our church. Lord, I just say thank you to you. I couldn't thank you for all of the blessings you've given to my family and to me and personally and to this church. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given to this church to be in this neighborhood and not other neighborhoods where it's easy. I thank you for the opportunity to be here where it's difficult and where it costs us something to be a member. When other churches have much, when other churches look for nothing and they they want for nothing, Lord, we have to depend completely on you. And I thank you for that. Lord, we trust that you will provide for this church. Lord, I pray that we would not miss the opportunity Of spreading the gospel in a city that so desperately needs to hear it. In a neighborhood that so desperately needs to hear it. Lord, I know my brothers and sisters here today pass by bigger churches with better programs. In better neighborhoods, but yet they come here because they want the opportunity. And they love the opportunity to do ministry here. Lord, let us not then forsake that opportunity, but take the message of the gospel out into this neighborhood. On this day, there are people in this service who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people here right now who do not know your son as their Savior, who need to know him intimately, who need to be poor in spirit so that they might inherit the kingdom of God. Lord, do not allow us to miss the opportunity to evangelize here at home in our very own church. God, I thank you for the opportunity. Begin the revival in America here. Thank you for this church. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. One of the most frustrating things in life is when we try really hard to achieve something and still fail. I remember one time I had, um, I had gotten serious. I had gone back to, to school. I took a year off in college, and I had gone back to school. And my first semester back, I got all B's, and I was so proud of that and I thought man I had worked hard for it and if I just put my mind to it I'm gonna I can do this college thing so I signed up for my next set of classes in the second semester and one of them included an economics course and I was really serious about getting a good grade in this class and I remember there was a our first midterm had come up and in college you know you have a midterm and a final and that's about it in this class it was 50-50 you got 50% for your midterm and 50% on your final. So if you bombed on your midterm, that was it. And I remember I worked really, really hard to, to do well on this exam. I remember studying. I had made note cards. I never made note cards before. And I made note cards to try and memorize these terms. You know, I was just kind of, I, I got through school on my personality, as dad used to say. I mean, like father, like son. And I remember I worked so hard to do well. And when I went into the exam, I I thought I knew the terms, and I thought I was going to be able to answer the questions. And I took the test, and I felt good about it. And when I got it back, I had a C on it. And I was so devastated because I had tried so hard. A C in college, if you know, is like failing. Like you might as well just drop the class. You actually can't get credit according to college in, in Florida. You have to follow what's called Gordon rule. And if you get a C you, in the class, you, you lose your credit. You don't get credit for that class. You have to retake it. And I was devastated about that. But what feels even worse is when you fail spiritually. You know, I felt stupid when I failed on that test. And I know you've been there where you've taken it and you really thought you were going to do good. And you feel stupid because you didn't do well. And that's just just as honest as I can be. You feel like you're not as smart as other people. And you're embarrassed. But what happens in your spiritual life? I can remember times where my behavior in school was really bad and I would... I would have a reformation, little spots of reformation in my life, and I would correct my bad behavior in school, or I would quit drinking in college, or I would stop cursing. And I remember, I remember this one time I was really living for the Lord, really, really serious about my walk with Him, and I was still working at Edwin Watts Golf, and I remember I had committed myself not to curse And I was gonna be better than that, and I remember my assistant manager set me off one day, and I lost my temper In his office, and I cursed him out man. I cursed him out good. I Used all the words you guys use Yeah, I know him too And I use them all and um, I told him if he wanted to go, we could do this. And I was really, really angry. And when I left, I felt completely defeated because he knew I was a believer. And even unbelievers know this much. They know believers don't act like that. I failed. I failed miserably. On that day, did I not embarrass myself only? I embarrassed God, and I embarrassed every Christian, I failed. But it's at times like these when the Spirit reminds us of this sweet, sweet truth. That if we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. Of all unrighteousness. We're not worthy, and none of us will ever be worthy. You'll never know what it is to be saved until you try really, really, really hard to please God. And you give it your level best, says Lewis. You give it all. You're all, man. You're convinced you're never gonna sin again. And you try. And you put all of your effort, you get every friend out of your life who doesn't need to be there. You pour out every bottle of alcohol. You put away every CD and every movie that has bad language in it. And you're not going to use it anymore. And then you fail. And you realize you're completely bankrupt before God. And you, in your own effort, will never Never please God. It is no accident that Jesus begins the greatest sermon ever preached with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to talk this morning i 'm going to begin our introductory sermon on the Beatitudes, and I want to talk about these these great truths that many people, even non-believers know these sayings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth and the, uh, the, they shall inherit the kingdom of God, and those who are meek will inherit the earth, those who are mourning will be comforted. all of these we know these, and we know them, and we love them but What I want to just say at the outset and as we begin is that these sayings of Jesus cannot be separate or separated from the entire person and work of Jesus Christ. You cannot take a saying like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. It loses its meaning. If you understand that phrase outside, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek. If you understand those phrases in isolation apart from a crucified God on a cross, you miss them and you don't understand them. And when the world speaks these beatitudes without knowing intimately what it is to be poor in spirit, because they've tried really hard to be the type of person that God wants them to be, they don't understand You're privileged to understand these. The Beatitudes are promises of blessing for aligning oneself with the things God sees are important. The Beatitudes are promises of blessings for aligning oneself with the things God sees as important. And so every beatitude that we're going to study for the following weeks is going to be in terms of the way that God defines poor in spirit. And that's what I want to do this morning. Look with me at Matthew 5.3. Jesus begins. He went up on a mountain to teach. And Jesus is going to be a new teacher with a new law. Just like Moses was on the mount, Jesus too was on the mount. And he is going to begin his inauguration. As the Lord and teacher of the church, and he begins with this phrase Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to talk about this first word, the word blessed. I want to look at how the world defines blessings and how God defines blessings. Because when we start any of these Beatitudes, we have to ask this question What does God think is a blessing? The first word here, blessed, points us to good times and not bad ones. There are many woes in the Bible and many watch-outs. And each one is as serious as the next and must be followed by the man of God. But the Bible also speaks of blessings. And in these beatitudes, we have blessings. Matthew Henry notes that the Old Testament ended with a curse in Malachi 4.6, but the gospel begins with a blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Another word here, some translations interpret the word "markios" as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. And some people are offended by that term. They say God is not concerned with our happiness. But but just for a moment, just for a moment, let's entertain the thought that God cares about us having a joy, a joy in what he determines will give us joy, a happiness. Blessed. The concept of true happiness can and does vary according to historical and cultural context. For the Greeks, happiness was connected to a godlike status of ascendancy beyond moral norms. Anybody who reads the mythology of the Greek gods knows that they were happy, but they were by no means moral. The gods of Greeks were immoral. But they had happiness. According to Jews, happiness came by obedience to the law. But Jesus comes with a new teaching, and he tells us how we might be blessed by obeying God. We have our own responsibility this morning to ask the question, what is happiness according to the way God defines it? Our own postmodern context defines happiness or blessedness in terms of self-actualization. You just turn on the TV, read any magazine, go on social media. What is it that is the, the key to happiness? And it's do what makes you happy. That's, that's the postmodern world. Postmodernism is characterized by relativism. That is the idea that each of us have our own little truths. And if something makes you happy, do it. Do that. And that's how the world thinks. The devil has his own set of beatitudes. Blessed are the rich, for they have their kingdom on earth. And don't think that we don't subtly follow the devil's beatitudes. We will subtly do what makes us happy. And Jesus begins by saying, if you want true happiness, you don't follow what you think gives you happiness, what you think makes you blessed. You do what God says will make you blessed. You know, even rich people, even the rich and famous, admit emptiness with all of the wealth. Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to know deep down that he's lost his soul to get it. The drug addict thinks he's found heaven at every token tap, but in reality, he's only anesthetizing the pain of his real life. And so too are all of those who look for happiness outside of these beatitudes. If there is something out there, maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your maybe it's your spouse. You know, that's one of the that's one of the biggest problems in American marriages is that we look to our spouse to be our savior, to be where true happiness lives. But when you get married, you marry another lost person. Equally as sinful as you are. Maybe you're looking for, for salvation in drug addiction. Or alcohol addiction. Or in sex. This morning, there is no blessing there. But Jesus says, if you want true happiness, if you want true blessedness, be poor in spirit. Here's how God defines blessedness. When our lives correspond to His will... We are blessed. God defines blessedness when our lives correspond and are in light of and following His will. If you want to know the life of happiness, the blessed, not, the, the blessed life, the truest human existence that there is to have, God defines it and God gives it to us. For God, blessedness is following His will. This blessedness is not something that we don't perceive here and now or that we don't receive here and now, though we'll never completely have it in this life. But we may know of the blessing of God in producing in us a spirit that is aware of our total bankruptcy before Him, of our meekness, of our desire for righteousness, of our broken and contrite heart, we may know now that we are blessed because God has revealed to us the nature of true religion, namely that true religion begins with a low and contrite heart. Blessed are you when you have a right understanding of who you are as a human being. What are you as a human being? The Bible tells us you are sinful, totally and completely sinful. In your mouth is nothing but the venom of poisonous vipers. Your heart is the depth of a grave. You are dead in trespasses and sins. You don't seek God. You say you do, but you don't. And God says that the beginning of blessedness begins by understanding you are impoverished in spirit. What does it mean then to be poor in spirit? It means that true discipleship in Christ must begin in poverty of ourselves. Listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 57. He says, I dwell in the high and the holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. The word contrite is not a word we use too much these days, but it means this, a complete and utter brokenness about how sinful you are. Listen to what God says. God says, I dwell in two places. I dwell in the high and the heavenlies the unapproachable heaven is a place you cannot get to I love when scientists come out and say scientists think they found heaven you you can't find heaven it's invisible God says to those who don't have who don't have Christ there is a great chasm and the two can never transgress it you never get there God says I dwell in heaven high and lifted up I am holy And I dwell with him who has a contrite and lowly spirit. The Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. But of course we know of the many sins and failures of David's life. What is it that makes David a man after God's own heart? That he desires what only God can give him he knows he is impoverished in spirit and that the only way to obtain the righteousness with God and the righteousness that God requires is to have it given to him by God Israel Jacob is one of the most terrible characters in the Old Testament deceiving his dying father Yet he receives a birthright, birthright, why? Because he is willing to wrestle with God for what only God himself can give. God dwells in two places. He is high and lifted up, and he dwells with the one who says, I've got nothing to give you, God, only you can do everything for me. Don't miss that point this morning. God dwells with those who are contrite in heart. Well, how do we become poor in spirit? We might ask this question, how do we arrive at having an attitude that is poor in spirit? We must ask, what does Matthew mean by being poor in spirit? He's not necessarily talking about poor people or poverty, is he? In fact, when you go over and you read in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Luke just says, blessed are the poor. Very similar sermon. Scholars call that the Sermon on the Plain, and this is called the Sermon on the Mount. Is it that, that God is saying there's a special blessing to those who are poor, monetarily poor? It's at this point where the liberationist makes his error. He assumes that what makes a man worthy to God is his economic situation and not his spiritual situation. And this is why Matthew takes the fuller sense of the beatitude and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. There can be people who are poor as dirt and still have an ego as high as heaven and not please God. And there can be rich, rich men who know that they are poor in spirit, and God dwells with him. This is not an economic situation. It's not an economic issue. It is an attitude before God. Here's how John MacArthur defines it. He says, "Being poor in spirit means this. It is the opposite of self-sufficiency. It speaks of the deep humility of recognizing one's utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. Poor in spirit describes those who are acutely conscious of their own lostness and hopelessness apart from divine grace. So how then does this happen that we might have an attitude of poor in spirit? The answer is that when we view ourselves in light of the majesty of God, the only thing that we can do is say, Get away from me, for I am unclean. Listen to this story in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he that is Jesus was standing by the lake of the Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught to the people from the boat. So listen to what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going to get in this boat, and Simon sees that Jesus needs help because the crowd is pressing in on him. They want to be healed. They want to be close to Jesus. And Jesus says, push away. Let me, let me teach them from the water so that they will hear me. But Luke tells us no more about that issue of the narrative. It says, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, that is Peter... Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now think about this. Everyone in the community knows who Jesus is, and even Peter knows who Jesus is. But Peter decided that it would be better to be away from Jesus and fish than to be like the rest of the people on the shore desiring Jesus. So he is doubly worse. The people at least want something from Jesus. And Peter wants nothing from Jesus. And he knows who he is. He says, Master, we fished all night. He's more concerned about fishing than anything else. Peter has not considered just who this man named Jesus is. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. He's going to be obedient. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. They're in dire need. Water comes in a boat quickly, and that boat, once it sinks, it's impossible to get it back up to the surface. You can forget it. But listen to what happens to Peter. In the moment of his greatest need, as his boat and as his very life is sinking, the only concern for Peter is this. Get away from me, for I am a sinful man. Oh Lord. All of us, when we encounter Jesus and we encounter the holiness of God, have nothing but to say to God, other than, get away from me. In Judges, A husband and a wife, when they had been with the angel of the Lord for some time and realized that it was God, when they realized they had seen God, they went back and said, Surely we shall now die, for we have seen the Lord. Peter's in this same terror. It says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats into land, they left everything, and they followed him. Wow. Imagine what it is when you saw Jesus for the first time and heard the sweet words of the Holy Spirit call out to your heart and reveal to you your nakedness. No man gets to heaven without first being low and contrite in heart. The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is the key to salvation. If you want to be saved, be aware that you are completely naked and in need of God. The Bible says, Jesus says, I have come not to heal those who are well, but to give life to those who are sick. What is common to man is the sin of thinking that in this life, we may achieve for ourselves our own righteousness. That in this life, This is all there is, and all that we have to earn is here and now, and we live our lives like this Monday through Friday. The rat race is on. But Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. He told the church at Laodicea, who was rich in spirit, Would that you would buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in spirit. Jesus contended with the misunderstandings of wealth then, and he contends with the misunderstandings of blessedness and wealth today. Put no stock in the passing things of this world, for the Lord will come like a thief And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But blessed are the poor in spirit. This is not an encouragement for spiritual depression, but rather the keys to understanding true faith. Those who rest upon their works will not inherit the kingdom of heaven but only those who are poor in spirit and who depend completely on the righteousness that only God can give them. Here's what John Stott says about this phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says to those who are so spiritually poverty stricken that they have nothing in the way to merit God's salvation. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So the beginning of this conditional this morning is have the right spirit. If you have this spirit, then you will inherit the kingdom of God. A lot of us want to know if we're saved this morning. The question is, have you begun your salvation process by denying yourself of any work to get to heaven? If you have, you understand your spiritual poverty before God blessed are you. Well, what comes from this? Finally, it ends with saying they will inherit the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It is the rule of God. It is the place where God reigns and governs his people, the church. Sometimes we call this place heaven, but a better description is of a kingdom with a king and with a people with responsibilities with power with unity and with diversity the place we call heaven is really the kingdom of god i want i want to wipe away just for a moment all of these misunderstandings of of heaven we we, we think heaven is the place where we we sit on a cloud and play a harp for all eternity i can't think of anything more boring than playing a harp on a cloud with a robe and little baby wings. Like, what is more boring than that? That's not heaven. The Bible doesn't say heaven is anything like that. Here's how the Bible describes heaven. What are we going to inherit? Those of us who are poor in spirit in the kingdom of God. Number one, we inherit God as king. In this political season, where every time we turn on the TV one of the two candidates has done something incredibly illegal or said something incredibly stupid, you have to desire, brothers and sisters, a better king. The good news, those of us who are poor in spirit, is that we are not going to live in America forever. We shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that means we get God as king. Revelation says this behold the dwelling place of God is with man He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God Every judgment he makes will be perfect and true and right his economic plan is never going to fail No threat from the outside will ever come in because God is king But not only that, we inherit God as conqueror. Revelation again, 21 says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God conquers our sadness. You can't watch the news. You can't live in this world without sadness. The Bible says God conquers sadness in the kingdom of heaven. There, death shall be no more. No more worry about that that little twinge in your side. Is it cancer? No more worry about Zika. No more worry about Ebola. No more worry about death because there, those of us who are poor in spirit, inherit a kingdom where death and suffering and sadness are gone. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Listen to what it says. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God is our conqueror. We will walk the streets in the kingdom of heaven with complete safety. No fear, for God is our conqueror in the Lamb. Not only that, but we also inherit in the kingdom of heaven God as our eternal provider. Again, quoting Revelation, to the thirsty, I will give them the spring of the water of life without payment. Nothing in, everything in heaven is free. We like free stuff, right? But we also know something about free stuff on earth. If it's free, it's not very good. Right? You get something free, you know it's gonna break. Because nobody gives things away that are worth anything for free. But listen to what it says to the thirsty. And think, you know, Americans, we don't thirst, but think about those who are really thirsty. That's why there is some connection between poor in spirit and actually poor. Those who really thirst and know that they have no money to give to even get just a drop of water. It says, I will give them the spring of the water of life without payment. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. No electric bills in the kingdom of heaven. No broken air conditioners. God is our provider. It says not only that, but we will reign with Him forever and ever. This will be a bliss of eternal lastingness. No no point in this time will we ever lose God or his gifts. Finally, God is our protector in the kingdom. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, Revelation 21. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him forever. There is no chance that in the kingdom of heaven any of us can ever be threatened from without or from within because God gives to us a new heart. You know, this morning... If you have that contrite heart, the message of the gospel doesn't start or stop there. It starts there. You know, we've said for years that in order to get people saved, you have to first get them lost. That's where the gospel starts, but it doesn't end there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But Paul says in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because those of us who have that heart today that feels completely guilty of every sin, God is willing to pour out his spirit this morning to you who would recognize your need for him and simply say, Jesus, I receive you. Give me a new heart. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning?